Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. House Democrats today calling the first Biden impeachment inquiry a farce and contending that Republicans don't have any direct evidence against the president. We have the key takeaways and reactions from lawmakers. Two days away from a possible government shutdown, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is still working to prepare a short-term funding measure. We'll bring you the latest. How would Republican presidential candidates handle U.S.-China relations? Moderators at yesterday's debate grilled them on a variety of issues regarding the Chinese communist regime. An appeals court rules on former President Trump's bid to delay his trial in the New York fraud case. The trial is set to begin next Monday. And a shooting in the Netherlands leaves three dead, including a 14-year-old girl. Authorities are investigating the motives, the suspect's motives. Did President Biden benefit from his son's foreign business dealings? Republican lawmakers say yes, while Democrats say no in today's first impeachment inquiry hearing. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards reviews the arguments. House Republicans Thursday launched the first hearing of their impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. Chairman of the House Oversight Committee James Comer believes the evidence is building against the president. Since assuming our Republican majority in January, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has uncovered a mountain of evidence revealing how Joe Biden abused his public office for his family's financial gain. For years, President Biden has lied to the American people about his knowledge of and participation in his family's corrupt business schemes. He said Biden repeatedly lied about his knowledge of his family's foreign business dealings. Joe Biden also lied to the American people about his family making money in China. He continued to lie about it even when the House Oversight Committee uncovered bank wires, revealing how the Bidens received millions from Chinese companies with significant ties to Chinese intelligence and the Chinese Communist Party. The alleged business is that Biden's son Hunter was selling his father's influence to foreign businessmen and governments in exchange for millions of dollars in payments, and that those payments were being shared with the president's family. Witness Jonathan Turley said the president's son Hunter was clearly committing a crime. Many people now accept that what Hunter Biden did was rather raw and open influence peddling. So the only question is, uh, was the president involved in that? The question of Biden's involvement in his son's business dealings was highly debated. Ranking member James Raskin said Republicans don't have a shred of evidence against President Biden. The majority sits completely empty-handed with no evidence of any presidential wrongdoing, no smoking gun, no gun, no smoke. Turley said Biden likely did benefit. This idea that you can have millions going to a politician's family and that's not a benefit, um, I think is pretty fallacious. Representative Lisa McCain said in 2014, then-Vice President Biden met with the Romanian president to discuss a corrupt businessman. Later, the businessman's company, Bladen Enterprises, began paying money to Biden's family. Between November 2015 and May 2017, Bladen Enterprises deposited over $3 million into Robinson Walker's LLC business account. But then the Biden family accounts received more than $1 million from Robinson Walker's accounts after these deposits were made. 
Ironically, 16 of those 17 payments occurred while Joe Biden was vice president. Another issue of contention was whether or not Republicans had the authority to hold the hearing in the first place. Democrats said the rules required them to have a full House vote. Speaker Kevin McCarthy initiated the inquiry two weeks ago. Today, I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. It's not clear whether or not the impeachment inquiry can continue without a House vote. One witness said former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi similarly began an impeachment inquiry of Trump, but that the House voted on it a few days later. Tiffany? With this impeachment hearing coming at a time when a government shutdown could be just days away, Democrats raised the question, what takes priority? But Republicans argue that the evidence for impeachment creates a sense of urgency. NTD's Melina Weiskup is on Capitol Hill with more on what lawmakers on both sides have to say. Republicans say there are serious concerns about whether or not President Biden is compromised because of his son's foreign business deals. But the timing of this hearing has given Democrats a way to slam the GOP's priorities because here we are with the government shutdown just two days from now. And this argument has been one that Democrats throughout the day have honed in on. Here's what some of them told me. Political theater is more important than the functions of operating the federal government in the economy. It's pretty much of a sham hearing. We're, we're two days away from a Republican shutdown that they're focused on, and yet we're wasting all of our time in this inquiry. Republicans, though, defend their having this hearing today, saying that the evidence they have presented provides a level of urgency. I think you're seeing a puzzle come together. Influence peddling. While Joe Biden was vice president, talking about corruption, and in charge of foreign policy. That is concerning. That they were trying to find ways to protect Joe Biden, even though it is very clear from the text messages that Joe Biden is involved. Yet two days ago, the bank wire to Joe Biden's house from Beijing for a quarter of a million dollars. When I asked Democrats specifically about this piece of evidence, here's what they had to say in response. I mean, to be clear also, I mean, the, the, uh, Hunter Biden lived for a period of time with, 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 with his father, so that, that, that evidence means nothing. But not a smidgen of evidence that uh, President Biden has committed a high crime. All assertions that Democrats and President Biden himself deny. The White House has repeatedly this week tried to brush off this hearing, continuing to say that this is an example of political extremism and continuing by that talking point that President Biden has no involvement in Hunter Biden's foreign business deals. This issue is long from over, though. We can expect to continue to see these chairmen pushing these investigations, especially as we approach the 2024 elections. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup. NTD News. Turning now to the possible government shutdown, Washington will be off the clock in two days. That is if lawmakers fail to reach consensus on funding by end of day Saturday. Here's a look at where things stand. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is working to push through a short-term stopgap measure. If passed, it would keep the government open for another six weeks. But Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said that House Democrats won't support it. 
Instead, he urged McCarthy to hold a vote on the Senate's version of a continuing resolution. According to McCarthy, the GOP's stopgap measure will be brought to the House floor tomorrow, but whether it's going to pass remains unclear. Meanwhile, the State Department has been making contingency plans in case a shutdown occurs. It's deciding which jobs can be suspended and which cannot because they're essential to national security. Electric vehicles, the Ukraine war and business dealings. All these topics were tied to China at yesterday's GOP primary debate. Here's what the candidates had to say about the communist regime. How would Republican presidential candidates handle China relations? They touched upon a variety of issues at Wednesday's second primary debate on the Fox News channel and often didn't agree. But Putin's an evil dictator does not mean that Ukraine is good. This is a country that has banned 11 opposition parties. A win that has for actually, Russia is a that win is not for true. China. We're driving a win Russia. For Russia excuse is me. A win ex- for excuse me. If you have but a chance, I forgot you like China. Have, That's no, why you, you're. You'll okay. have you'll have your chance in just a moment. Former Vice President Mike Pence holds a similar view as South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in this regard. Vivek, was if you let Putin have ranks. Ukraine, that's a green and light to China to take Taiwan. We need the peace comes through strength. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum says promoting electric vehicles would support China, which is exploiting other countries. And the batteries come from China. China controls 85% of the rare earth minerals. They're called rare earth because they're measured in parts per million. China is moving 100,000 pounds of earth in Indonesia, in Africa. They're literally destroying the planet so that we can make and make a battery that's in a car subsidized here. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis talked about the growing influence the CCP has in Latin America and the Indo-Pacific. Watch. They have been able to build the second most powerful military in the entire world. We need a totally new approach to China. We are going to have real hard power in the Indo-Pacific, like Reagan, to deter their ambitions. We're going to have economic independence from China, where we're decoupling our economy. And we are going to go after the cultural power they have in this country. And CEO Vivek Ramaswamy defended himself after candidates attacked him for his business dealings in China. When every other CEO expanded into the Chinese market, you know what I did with my first company? We opened a subsidiary in China. But you know what I did that was different than every other company? We got the hell out of there. The third Republican primary debate is set to take place in Miami on November 3rd. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Let's look deeper at last night's GOP presidential primary debate. For analysis of the candidates' positions on China, we spoke with a retired Air Force general, who's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. General Spaulding, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be back. General, in last night's second GOP debate, the Chinese Communist Party was brought up quite a bit more than in the first debate. What did you make of that? Well, it's starting to catch on. Um, the uh, committee for the CCP that's ongoing in the House and Mike Gallagher's continued and relent, uh, unrelenting um, focus on the Chinese Communist Party, I think, is starting to catch on. I think people are beginning to recognize that the Chinese Communist Party is influencing our society in, in, in ways that are counter to our own interests, to our own democratic principles. And so I think the fact that it's uh, now you know, on the debate stage is great. I think that the challenge we have is that the Democratic Party is still not really stepping up to focus on the Chinese Communist Party as a, as a problem. And it shouldn't be just a Republican initiative. It should be recognized by both sides of the aisle that this is a considerable challenge to our 
to our republic. General, you did mention Mike Gallagher, and that is a bipartisan group. But out of the candidates last night, who do you think has the strongest foreign policy when it comes to countering the CCP? Well, I definitely um, like the um, the talking points that Vivek Ramaswamy has been using, and of course uh, Ron DeSantis. So uh, ultimately, though, what's gonna uh, what's gonna matter is how they actually implement policy. Uh, if uh, or when they're elected. So that's the real challenge. There's a lot of uh, people that talk about the Chinese Communist Party, but ultimately you have to do something about it. It can't just be a campaign slogan. You have to actually uh, follow through. And speaking of Ramaswamy, he got some heat last night for defending his use of TikTok. Other candidates were pointing to the concerns with China. But during an ad break, Fox played an ad for TikTok. What did you make of that? You know, um, TikTok's a psychological weapon. It's not really TikTok. TikTok is kind of um, this benign thing that is powered by ByteDance. ByteDance is really the power behind TikTok. It's a power behind um, how the Chinese Communist Party leverages AI to understand citizens, how they think and behave, and then feeds them content that's meant to uh, do a number of things. One is to really just dumb down the population. Uh, and that's a challenge for us because 30% today of young people get their news from TikTok. So if you can imagine if you're creating a, a citizenry that really doesn't have a knowledge of the issues or current um, events, then I think we have a big challenge. The other is it feeds it um, messages that are promoting the Chinese Communist Party and, and certainly promoting the way the Chinese Communist Party views the world. And then finally, it's beginning to um, slowly enculturate this idea of, uh, of Marxism as a, um, as a you know, viable philosophy for, um, for how we organize our society. That's the challenge. It's really recognizing as a political and psychological weapon, yes, they take data, but the data is taken for the, the express purpose of, of actually attacking you know, the, the foundations and principles upon which the nation was um, founded. Quite concerning. And as we head into the third GOP debate, what would you like to see more of from candidates in terms of China? Well, <laughs> I guess I'd like to see less debating, but uh, that's not going to happen. So really getting into the policy issues, I think, is where we need to go. It's not. It needs to be less about mudslinging, more about what are the substantive issues that face us? Let's have some discussion around, you know, why we've had the policy decisions we've had in the past and why it's so important that we change. General Spaulding, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Former President Trump has no plans to attend any future Republican primary debates. A senior advisor to Trump's 2024 campaign confirmed the decision to reporters. He said of Trump, quote, he said he's not going to attend the debates, plural, and that's his position until it's not. The advisor added that the debates have become more like a contest for who's going to be the designated survivor. Trump's give both the first and the second Republican primary debates. And we'll have more post-debate analysis for you in the second half of the show, so be sure to stick around for that. In other Trump news, the trial for the former president's fraud case in New York will go forward as planned. An appeals court today rejected Trump's bid to delay the trial. 
The decision clears the way for Judge Arthur Engoron to preside over a non-jury trial starting Monday in Manhattan. This is part of New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil lawsuit into Trump and the Trump Organization. Engoron ruled on Tuesday that Trump and his business were liable for fraud and that they inflated the value of their properties. The decision revokes the Trump Organization's business certificates in New York and shifts control of some of his companies to someone appointed by the court. Trump denies any wrongdoing. Turning now to international news, Russia and Ukraine continue their tug-of-war narrative. This comes as Russia marks the one-year anniversary of annexing parts of Ukraine, while at the same time NATO says Ukraine continues to gain ground. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. Workers were seen putting the final touches on a large stage in Moscow's Red Square. On Friday, Russia will mark the one-year anniversary since they held elections in four Ukrainian regions controlled by Russia. Those votes, which were held in the Ukrainian regions of Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia and Kherson, were all denounced by Kyiv as illegal. Russian President Putin had this to say about those elections. This is, of course, a significant event, an important step towards the full entry of the new regions into the single legal state space of our big country. Also on Thursday, Putin met with the leader of Chechnya, a republic of Russia. He gave an update on the war, and he also took a shot at the U.S. military tanks being sent to Ukraine, the Abrams. Your team shows good results. Every day they take prisoners of war, Every day they destroy military vehicles. No Abramsky tanks, or whatever they are called, are no obstacles for them. However, while Russia speaks of its progress in the war, NATO says Ukraine is making progress too. On Thursday, NATO Secretary Jen Stoltenberg met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Today your forces are moving forward. They face fierce fighting but they are gradually gaining ground. And there is a stark contrast. Ukrainians are fighting for their families, their future, their freedom. Moscow is fighting for imperial delusions. Stoltenberg also said NATO has made deals with weapon companies for about $2.5 billion in ammunition. He said that will help NATO countries refill their own weapon supplies and also support Ukraine in the war. Jason Perry, NTD News. In the Netherlands, a gunman opened fire, first in an apartment and then in a medical school classroom, killing three people. Police say the suspect also set fires at both locations. The victims include a 43-year-old male teacher, a 39-year-old woman, and her 14-year-old daughter. The teen was injured initially but later died at the hospital. The 32-year-old male suspect was identified as a student at the medical school. He also lived on the same street as the woman and her daughter. The Rotterdam police arrested the suspected gunman near the medical school. Authorities say he was holding a weapon and wearing a bulletproof vest. A city official said the motive behind the shooting is not yet known and that it was probably a targeted attack. Coming up, a murder that shocked the local community in Baltimore, Maryland. A suspect has now been arrested over the death of a tech startup CEO. LA officially dropping its COVID vaccine mandate for school employees. 
The policy had been in place for two years, drawing criticism. Children consistently skipping school are wreaking havoc on their families. We talk with a mother who solved her son's problem and is teaching other families how to do the same for their kids. Tesla's court trial begins. The EV manufacturer is being sued for a crash that killed the driver in 2019. The center of debate, autonomous driving. And Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg kicked off the company's annual products conference. What was unveiled? Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back. Authorities in Maryland arrested a suspect for the killing of Baltimore Tech CEO Pavela Pear. The suspect was taken into custody without incident last night. Right now, all the indications are that this was not a random act of violence. We have information to believe that the victims from Edmondson Avenue were targeted by the suspect, that the suspect knew the victims, and he went into that location for a uh, criminal reason. We know that the victim and suspect were known to each other. LaPere was the co-founder and CEO of tech startup company Ecomap Technologies. She was known for being on Forbes' 30 under 30 list. She was found dead in her apartment on Monday. Investigators say they believe LaPere was killed sometime on Friday. The suspect, Jason Billingsley, is a registered sex offender and convicted felon with a lengthy criminal history. He had been sentenced to 30 years in prison but was released last year. Police believe he was also responsible for a rape, arson and attempted murder days earlier. COVID-19 vaccine requirements are officially lifted at the Los Angeles Unified School District. The new policy applies to all employees, bringing an end to the two-year-old mandate. NTD's Christina Corona has more on the story. The Los Angeles Unified School District lifted its COVID-19 vaccine requirement for school employees at a board meeting Tuesday. LAUSD Superintendent Alberto Carvalho recalls when the district first implemented the mandate two years ago. In 2021, during times of uncertainty, this board made decisions. And yes, this board approved required vaccinations as a means of reducing transmission, reducing the severity of a disease that in this community across this country and across the world killed millions. This was a necessary requirement. The district's Board of Education also imposed a COVID vaccine requirement for students in response to high infection and hospitalization rates. This prompted many other school districts and local governments to adopt to similar vaccine mandates. However, in 2021, the LAUSD terminated 1,000 teachers and staff for declining to take the COVID vaccines. One attorney criticized the board's decisions during Tuesday's meeting. You need to reinstate all employees with full back pay. You demanded that employees submit to an irreversible invasive EUA injection, a medical procedure with documented risks like blood clots, myocarditis, stroke, and death. And the people you fired, they couldn't even get unemployment, and without medical care, they couldn't even get therapy to deal with the clinical depression you plunged them into. 
The district's Board of Education said in a statement, in light of evolving medical data and in consultation with local health authorities, the district has revised its vaccination policy as many other county, state, and federal entities have done. The board goes on to say, we would like to thank our human resources and medical teams and our university partners for their continued leadership and guidance through this process. Los Angeles Unified will continue to follow the guidelines of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Public health, as well as examine and update our protocols to ensure the health and safety of everyone in our school communities. The mandate was first implemented back in August 2021. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Some children find school so distressing they consistently skip class, putting their families in turmoil. One mother not only solved the problem, but also became an expert on the issue. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. School avoidance. When children feel so genuinely uncomfortable in class, they just can't attend. It's usually caused by mental health challenges such as anxiety, including social anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, trauma, and learning differences. These students can end up missing class for months, even years. When he was 12 or 13, his school avoidance was really severe, where he was missing days and weeks of school at a time. It is stigmatizing, isolating, scary. It was a long road because it's very hard to find the right mental health professionals and you need your school to work with you. Jane Dembski says the schools treated her son's problem as a behavioral issue instead of a mental health one. Only when the Dembskis consulted with their sixth psychiatrist did they get real advice. Eventually, Dembski moved her son, who is now 26, to a small boarding school where he had dedicated mentors and counselors. This helped him a lot. It is not a wait and see. It is go for help right now. Speak to the school district. You have to be proactive. You cannot show any of your anxiety with your child. You have to be very even toned and also obviously supportive. No yelling. No child is doing this purposely. Dembski has now dedicated her time to getting other kids back in class. She created the School Avoidance Alliance, which provides guidance and resources to parents and educators. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Tesla is back in court over its autopilot driver feature. The first U.S. trial is underway for a 2019 case that led to the death of a driver. The results could shape similar cases nationwide. The first U.S. trial over allegations that Tesla's autopilot driver assistant feature led to a death was set to begin on Thursday. Held in Riverside County Superior Court, the civil lawsuit alleges Tesla's autopilot system caused owner Micah Lee's Model 3 to suddenly veer off a highway east of Los Angeles at 65 miles per hour. The car struck a palm tree and burst into flames, all in the span of seconds. According to court documents, the 2019 crash killed Lee and seriously injured his two passengers. The passengers and Lee's estate filed a lawsuit against Tesla, accusing the EV company of knowing that autopilot and other safety systems were defective when it sold the car. Tesla has denied liability, saying Lee consumed alcohol before getting behind the wheel. The electric vehicle maker also claims it's unclear whether autopilot was engaged at the time of the crash. Tesla has been testing and rolling out its autopilot and a more advanced full self-driving system. Elon Musk says these are crucial to his company's future, but has drawn regulatory and legal scrutiny. 
In April, Tesla won a collection of lawsuits in LA claiming that drivers are told that its technology requires human monitoring despite the autopilot name. But the stakes are higher in this week's trial because people died. The trial is expected to last a few weeks. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg kicked off the tech giant's developer conference this week, where they focus on virtual reality and artificial intelligence. We spoke with NTD Business's host Don Ma for more on the event. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, great to be here as always, Tiffany. Don, to begin, give us a, a sense of the highlights from this conference. Yeah. So Zuckerberg explained uh, what his vision was going forward uh, for the company during this conference. He told the audience, uh, you know, which included developers, uh, employees, journalists, that he, he said Meta is focused on building the future of human connection. Um, he actually painted a near future where people interact with hologram versions of their friends and coworkers, uh, and with AI bots built to assist them. Uh, he says uh, that soon the physical and digital will come together in what they call the metaverse. So Meta is in fact in the midst of a corporate transformation that it says will take years to complete. You know, basically it wants to uh, evolve from a provider of social platforms to a uh, dominant power in a virtual reality world. Sounds like some bold claims there. So what products were shown? Sure. During the annual uh, products conference, right, Meta unveiled uh, a new mixed uh, reality headset um, as well as Ray-Ban smart glasses and artificial intelligence powered chatbots as well. So first of all, for the VR headset, uh, the company released uh, the Quest 3, which is said was its first mainstream headset built for uh, mixed reality. So, you know, for anyone thinking of experiencing VR, Quest 3 price starts at uh, $500 and will begin shipping next month. But as for uh, Meta's Ray-Ban smart glasses, uh, they have primarily two purposes. Uh, the first is to replace your headphones, actually, because you can actually make phone calls and listen to music with these. And the other thing that it can do is that it can record video because it has two cameras uh, mounted on the front. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Sounds like a lot of this ties into artificial intelligence. So what was Meta showing at the conference in terms of the AI space? Yeah, of course. Uh, so Meta also unveiled uh, more than two dozen chatbots. And those are going to work with the social media applications. Uh, the company announced Meta AI. This is a conversational assistant, and it's going to be available on WhatsApp, uh, Messenger, Instagram, and it can deliver real-time information uh, and other things like generate photorealistic images simply from users' text prompts. Uh, Meta is partnering with Microsoft's Bing Search to deliver information off the internet. Um, Meta AI will be built into the smart glasses as well as an assistant, so that's a plus over there. And a software update uh, is, is planned for next year, and this update will give the assistant the ability to identify places and objects uh, that people are seeing, and as well as to perform language translation. So that's just some of the features. Wow. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yep. Uh, as always, Tiffany. Coming up, a columnist says we're being force-fed by the GOP debates. Find out what he says voters really want to know from the candidates and who kept their dignity on stage here on NTD News.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A gunman in the Netherlands opened fire in an apartment in Rotterdam and then in a medical school classroom, killing three people. The suspect was identified as a student at the medical school. Authorities in Maryland arrested suspect Jason Billingsley for the murder of Baltimore tech startup CEO Pavel Per. Billingsley is a registered sex offender who just came out of jail last year. The first impeachment inquiry hearing into President Biden kicked off today. The center issue is Biden's involvement in his son Hunter Biden's business dealings. The trial for former President Trump's fraud case in New York will go forward as planned next Monday. An appeals court today rejected Trump's bid to delay the trial. Former President Trump's campaign confirmed that Trump will not be attending any future Republican primary debates. Trump skipped the first two debates already. Analysts are saying skipping the debates is a winning strategy for Trump. A columnist for the Epic Times and the founder of the Brownstone Institute is even saying the second GOP debate last night was a failure. We spoke with him to find out more. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. After last night's second GOP debate, you wrote a piece titled, That Second GOP Debate Was a Disaster. Why do you say that? What qualifies it for a disaster? Nothing came out of it of any substance or meaning. And really, everybody who participated in it came out looking terrible, from the moderators to the candidates to Fox News itself, which structured the debate and chose awful moderators who were asking uh, questions of almost no relevance whatsoever to any of the actual viewers or voters who are trying to make up their minds. It was it was really a very sad display, uh, and I, I came away with it, uh, you know, devastated, waited, wasted uh, two hours. But more than that, uh, just very sad for the state of the country that this is what they saw of their candidates. And on the note of the format, what would have been a better format that would be more constructive for the voters, especially? Well, probably there were too many to ca- too many candidates uh, in the first place. But I, I still think even that would have been manageable if they had had engaging questions and more time to speak. So they were limited to 30 seconds and 60 seconds. And so th- what that meant was they all had to shout these sort of social media-ready uh, cliches that they've been coached to do. They're all trying to uh, produce clips for Twitter or something. I don't know what that was about, but it wasn't intelligent. Everything was reduced to these little sound bites. And uh, they were really, the format itself turned them into marionettes. It was very sad. And former President Donald Trump wasn't present, but candidates took jabs at him. What did you make of that? Was that a winning strategy? Uh, well, I think the main job was they were mad that he didn't show up, but <laughs> <laughs> after watching that show for two hours, uh, you know, who doubts his wisdom in not showing up? At least he didn't get soiled uh, by that scene. Uh, there were some people who kept their dignity. I mean, DeSantis finally at the end uh, decided to call uh a fraud when one of the moderators suggested a survivor-like game where they all write on a piece of paper the person that they wish could they could kick off the island. At that point, DeSantis, who's a grown-up, said, look, I'm not going to participate in this. That's uh, despicable and disrespectful to others. 
And but that came in uh, just right at the end of the debate, and it kind of blew up the whole scene. I mean, the moderator at that point withdrew the question, but that's how f far it descended. So um, really, I have to say that Trump was the only winner uh, last night, and that was my intuition watching it, which was that at least he didn't get he didn't get soiled by this scene. And sure enough, uh, most commentators uh, today are saying the same thing that this might have finally secured his nomination. And if that's true, uh, this is a very serious matter because there's some, you know, impressive people in the running. But if they're not given a venue where they're allowed to show their intelligence and their knowledge of issues and their their passion about uh, leadership, then, you know, it, it really does have an effect on the outcome of debates. And I just don't think that Fox News took seriously its responsibilities. I mean, that's clear from the questions. I mean, none of the questions actually tapped in to the panic and sadness that so many voters feel right now, the sense that the country is very quickly going down the drain and uh, for very specific reasons. So yeah, Trump, by being separate from all that, actually, I would say, uh, in a strange way, comes out on top. And on that note about the topics that we didn't hear, what should we have heard more of? Well, uh, let me just start with the surveillance state. I mean, we've we've been surveilled, thanks to Epoch Times reporting. We know that uh, the CIA and the NSA and all these agencies have been manipulating social media, uh, censoring uh, posts. We've been dealing with this now for three and a half years. It's massively skewed the, the, the debates on really everything from January 6th to um, Hunter Biden laptop to the pandemic response. It's really massively skewed the public mind. I mean, this is a very, very serious issue. But of course, they didn't even touch on it. Um, even on the issue of education, Okay, so uh, we find that our kids are m two years and more behind on everything. And some of the data that you look at is absolutely shocking. A major contributing factor to that was the forced shutdown of schools in this country for the better part of two years in some places, and at least one in most places. And that was never even brought up to say nothing of the failure of the vaccine. Millions and millions of Americans were forced to get that vaccine that they didn't need it. Many people are left hurt. Uh, some people, uh, many, many people, millions, were professionally displaced because they refused it. That is a scandal of epic proportions, and it leads people to believe that they're not in charge of their own lives. That's not very American. That topic was, was never covered. We didn't get an honest discussion at all about the, the immigration uh, problem, which is, which is acute, and no real uh, honest talk about the situation with the proxy war in Russia. So it's, it's a very sad thing for Americans. I mean, I think many people tuned in, only about 1.3 million, I think. But, you know, people tune into those things with the earnest sense of wanting to find out answers and find out which candidate uh, best represents their views so they can go to the polls and vote for them in a kind of an old-fashioned way. But, but last night, left, and I've talked to a lot of people and read a lot of things about this after, left, left everybody sad, a sense that we don't have a real choice, that everything is kind of rigged, that Fox News itself is trying desperately to keep serious issues off the table, 
and and that we've been we've all been trapped in this strange matrix where we're just kind of force fed a bunch of gibberish and nonsense, and we're not really getting really a, real answers to all the the many many problems that afflict this country. And Jeffrey, after last night's debate, what should we expect to see from candidates themselves? Any damage control that needs to be done? Yeah, this is a good question. I was wondering about this myself. My guess is that most everybody on stage last night regretted being there. And and they might insist on looking more carefully at uh, the formats of their next debates. I mean, I wish the Epoch uh, were, were running the debates next time or NTD because they would do a much better job. And maybe they should insist on this because the major networks are not accomplishing this. Another thing that these candidates need to do is stop allowing their consultants and advisors to script them on these silly little sound bites that they're that they're doing all the time. It's not authentic. It doesn't connect with voters. Uh, it doesn't seem as if they're real people. They seem like robots. They need to cut this out. If they have any chance of cutting into Trump's lead, I would say last night he really did secure his position as as the leader of the pack by far. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you so much for your time. Okay, such a pleasure. Thank you. A unanimous vote in the Senate has formalized what members are required to wear. Senators will not be allowed to wear casual attire anymore. Though we've never had an official dress code, the events over the past week have made us all feel as though formalizing it is the right way forward. Senators pushed for a formal dress code after Senator Fetterman started coming into work in shorts and hoodies. Now members on the floor will be required to wear business attire. The issue began when Senate Leader Chuck Schumer quietly changed the dress code to accommodate Senator Fetterman, who suffered a stroke in 2022. Fetterman's presiding over the Senate wearing casual clothes caused an outcry in both parties. Coming up, it's America versus Europe in the ultimate golf event. But just how does the Ryder Cup actually work? And actor Michael Gambon has died. He's best known for his role of Hogwarts headmaster Albert Dumbledore in six of the eight Harry Potter films. More on that when we return. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at one of the biggest rivalry events across the globe. That's right, Tiff. It's America versus Europe starting tomorrow as Ryder Cup play begins. Now, if you're like a lot of people, you may know the Ryder Cup is a golf event and a team event at that, but you don't quite understand how it's played or scored. So here it is. Tomorrow and Saturday will feature four foursome matches in the morning. Now what's a foursome match? This is where two players from each team essentially combine as one using just one ball working together by alternating shots looking to get the best score on each hole. Now instead of total strokes over the entire course added up for scoring, the lowest score of each hole simply gets a point or half a point in the case of a tie. The team then with the most points gets one team point for the win or half points in a tie. In the afternoons of the first two days, they'll play four four-ball matches. Now, four-ball is another two-on-two -two match, 
but this time each player plays their own ball individually. Whichever the four has the best score for each hole gets a point, and just as in foursomes, it's total points added up instead of strokes to win the match. On Sunday, the final day, it's individual match play. Each of the 12 players on each team plays against someone on the other squad instead of the whole field. Now just as in foursomes and four ball, each hole is worth a point with the total points then added up instead of strokes to determine the winners. All in all, 28 team points are up for grabs in what most pundits would agree is the most unusual game. This is an event unlike any other in golf. There is no such thing as a comparability to the Ryder Cup because golf is an individual sport. James Ward, who's senior editor for Golf Today, says the unique team-style play of the Ryder Cup that not even live golf duplicates means you never know how a player will perform. So I said, Dave, give me one guy that you'd want to have start your Ryder Cup team. You'd probably say, well, Matt, I got to go with Tiger Woods because he's the best player in the world or was for so many years. But if you look at his record in Ryder Cup play overall in all the matches, he is way under 500 as a player. Ward points out that golfers are used to playing against a field of 100 other players where second place is an accomplishment instead of a last place finish like it is at the Ryder Cup. And the pressure is intense because you're not playing for yourself. You're playing for a team. Now the American team won the last event two years ago but haven't won in Europe since 1993. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, seven baseball games are on, but maybe none bigger than a Seattle-Texas matchup as the Mariners trail the division-leading Rangers by four games with just four games to play. And finally, in the NFL, the Detroit Lions play at the Green Bay Packers on Thursday night football. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And beloved Harry Potter star Michael Gambon has died. His family said in a statement the actor died peacefully in a hospital with his wife and son at his side after a bout of pneumonia. Gambon was probably best known for his role of Hogwarts headmaster Albus Dumbledore in six of the eight Harry Potter films. However, he also had an extensive catalog of work across TV, film and radio. Gambon won multiple Best Actor awards at the British Academy Television Awards and was nominated for two Emmy Awards. He was 82 years old. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.